was going to say that I feel a double sense of privilege here at this moment. One, because I have the privilege of sharing reflections on the Word of God. And the second reason is I'm the only person in the building who's allowed to dispense with a face covering at this moment. I would like a pound for every time somebody has said my face marks improves my appearance. And I'd like another pound, maybe a fiver, for the one who said, for you, John, it's a win-win situation. It makes you look better, and it helps to muffle your foghorn voice. Now, I won't tell you the name of the culprit, but as you can guess, you don't have to look further in Edge Hill University to find the culprit. I personally would like to send some of those students, maybe many, to charm school for a term or two, three or four or more. And uh, to what in our generation, Jeff, we used to know as finishing school, I'd like to send some to that too. Now, the, the proverb I've been asked to speak on, Matthew, 13 verse 33 is just one verse. And Jesus told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. In the very early 1970s, <coughs> excuse me, it was a Sunday morning and I was in Canning Road Chapel, the only church Julie and myself have belonged to, apart from the community church. And we'll ever thank God for those fine people who invested in our young Christian lives. But that Sunday morning I was battling and I had an issue, and I hadn't shared it with anybody. I hadn't even shared it with my wife. And there was a man, an elderly man, short of stature. His name was Mr. Hembury. And he saw me across the room. And a verse of scripture popped into his mind. So he walked across the hall. He said, John, Hebrews eleven twenty-seven. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. And then he walked back to the other side of the building. Now, I had no problem with the concept of an invisible God. When I'd reached and found Jesus, I found, in effect, an invisible friend. And I walked and talked with that friend daily ever since. And the more often I'd count him in, the better my day goes. But I realized that what I had my mind completely full with that morning was my problem. And I'd taken my eyes off that invisible friend. So I had to tear my eyes off the issue and focus on my God. It didn't take the problem away, but it did change my perspective on the problem. Now, you might say to me, John, that was a very little thing that gentleman did that morning. Yes, 
He had a thought, an idea, you might say a whisper, a prompt, a nudge, and he stepped out on it, a very little thing for him, but he threw me a lifeline that morning. And he probably forgot about it in a short time, and I'm telling you, 50 years later. And so, folks, when we get that thought, that idea, that whisper, that nudge, that prompt, let's step out and do it. That phone call might be a lifeline, and we need to obey. And that brings me to this parable, because I want to make five observations on the parable. And the first observation is this. God is a God who often works invisibly. God works invisibly. God is an invisible God. We have no problem with that. Mankind does so. He'll make himself a, an idol. He wants something he can look at, touch. He'll make himself a golden cup, or he'll worship the moon. We don't mind. We have an invisible God. But we need to understand the invisible God works often invisibly. You can't see him, and you can't see him at work. In the parable, in another version, it says that the lady took this yeast or this leaven and hid it in the flour. Another version says she folded it in to the dough. Our version said she mixed it in so it was hidden and you couldn't see it. And God is often working silently and stealthily and unobtrusively without any fanfare at all. But being God, he works irresistibly and irreversibly. So we look at the work which the yeast did and we realize it had a job to do, invisible to our eyes, and it penetrated and it permeated the whole of that earth. And the kingdom of God, the rule of God, is penetrating and permeating and spreading and ever increasing and ever increasing. So the awareness of that kingdom is ever more prominent. And the day will be when that job is complete and the whole universe, the whole universe will acknowledge every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. But it's not something which we can trace and see. It's something which is going on out of sight. One lesson we can learn from this is we should not be discouraged when nothing seems to be happening because a lot can be happening when nothing seems to be happening. Many of us are praying for somebody we love to find Jesus, or more than that one person. Or we're praying that somebody who's strayed away from Jesus might come back to Jesus, and we see nothing happening. Because maybe a lot is happening in that life and it's out of our sight. When we plant a seed or bulb into the ground, a process has to take place underneath the surface, out of our sight, and only when that is completed, we'll see the first little break of green appearing above the surface. We've got to wait 
In October 1987, a hurricane hit France and the south of England. It happened at night. There were 22 people killed. If it had happened in the daytime, it would have been hundreds and hundreds, but God was merciful. But tens of thousands of trees were felled in the south of England that night. You say the wind must have been very strong. It wasn't. It was ferocious. Gusts of 124 miles an hour. And one factor which people didn't consider is that for several days and nights before that, there had been incessant rain. So the ground was growing ever softer and softer, and the roots were being loosened and more loosened. And so when the wind came, it was carnage for those trees. Now we need to know, well, let's understand this. Mankind is divided into two. We have the once-born, they have physical life. We have the twice-born, they have physical and spiritual life. They've been born again of the Spirit of God. They know God personally. Mankind can be divided into two in another way. You have those who are prayed for, and those who are not prayed for. Those who are prayed for have a great advantage, an extra susceptibility to God. And the one we are praying for and have prayed for and maybe wept over for many years. Unseen by us, something is happening within them, imperceptibly. Maybe just a little bit more light, a little bit more sense of need, a little bit more sense of the futility and the emptiness of life as it is. And when the wind blows, those ones will be on their knees in a moment. Because of what has happened, out of sight in answer to our prayer, other ones will perhaps seemingly be impervious to it. So the lesson for us is not to give up, not to give up praying, because we don't know what is happening even when we can't see it. Perhaps the lesson in life with all is don't try to hurry God up and help him out. Who knows the name of somebody who tried that in the Old Testament? As one city of Abraham, you're right. Abraham decided that he was fed up with waiting and he would hurry God out and help God out. And the result was Ishmael and the world paying the price even today. And if you're desperately keen, you want something so badly, resist the temptation of snatching, wait for God's time and God's choice because God can only give us something when we've got an empty palm to say to him. So the first thing is God works invisibly and we need to realize he's working even though like the yeast, we can't see him at work. The second thing I would suggest is that, and Ali expressed it very well last week, God starts things in a small way. Ali was talking about the mustard seed, very tiny, and the mustard tree could end up the largest in the garden. Remember that every great man of God and every great woman of God and every great work of God and every great ministry, they all started small. 
And people might have said, well, nothing much will come from that. They'd be wrong. These parables will teach us, do not despise the day of small beginnings. The world of nature teaches us the same thing. We gaze on that towering oak tree, but let's remember it started with a single acorn. Let's remember that the longest trek and the longest journey started with a single step. The highest skyscraper started with a single brick or building block. Let's remember that. We started small. Every member of the human race, apart from the first two, started tiny, a little embryo within our mother's womb. And even nine months later, when we were born, we were plus or minus seven pounds. We do not despise the day of small beginnings. Things start small. Think of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say to me, John, I think that started when Jesus called 12 people to be his followers. That 12 went down to 11. That's the number on the bookings. And even seven weeks after the resurrection, there were only 120 in that upper room. That's less than we would normally have without restriction in this hall. And yet in that generation, that number had spread and increased. And these were the people who were told were turning the world upside down. The right way up, of course, in our age. But it started small. Now think of all the people who've come to know and love Jesus in every following generation, in every following century, all who are in glory today, ahead of us, all the people who love Jesus on this globe at this moment of time, all the people who are going to find the Redeemer in years to come, and tell me what is the number of the universal church of Jesus Christ? To understand, 12 has become trillions and trillions, and we do not despise it. It was a tiny little bit of yeast that that lady put into her plow. A lot of plow, but just a tiny little bit of yeast, and it penetrated and permeated and spread to cover the whole of that day. So we do not despise the day of small beginnings because that's the way God will always or nearly always will work. Maybe the third observation was this. The first one is God works invisibly. Second, we should not despise the day of small beginnings. And the third observation is this. There are some things we cannot measure and some things we are not meant to measure. You remember David, King David's result at the end of his illustrious reign, he decided he would number Israel. Why? Almost certainly, so he could say, when I started my reign, there were this number of fighting men of fighting age, and under my watch, look at the huge number now. So satisfied. But God was displeased. God saw his motive. And God decimated that number that he was so proud of. One thing which we're not meant to measure, and any way we can't, is our spiritual growth. It's happening. We can't measure it. We don't notice it. Other, period, other people, after a period of time, might. 
When we have a child in the house, we don't say this child is taller today than that child was yesterday. But when their uncle comes for the yearly visit at Christmas, he'll say, wow, are you on eight meals a day, you know? We're not meant to try to measure. We're not meant to be navel gazers. We're not meant to be introspective. We cannot measure our influence. We cannot measure our fruitfulness. We cannot measure our usefulness in the kingdom. We are not meant to. Every now and again, God will give us a glimpse of our fruitfulness to encourage us. That's all we will be allowed to see. But we can provide the conditions in which our spiritual growth will be inevitable. For the child, the physical growth will be ensured if the child is fed good food and has plenty of exercise. We will grow spiritually if we feed ourselves well and we exercise our spiritual muscles. Development and growth and maturity will inevitably take place. It will be invisible, like the yeast in the dough, but it will happen. But we're not able to, nor meant to measure it. The fourth out of five considerations is this. It comes by way of a warning. Some commentators major on this because in the Old Testament particularly, leaven is synonymous with sin. And they say this verse has a warning in it. And the warning is that we have an enemy, and he is invisible, and he works invisibly. He works silently and stealthily and subtly and surreptitiously, undetected. He seeks to penetrate and permeate the life of believers. And he does it in such a way that we don't notice it's happening. So Jesus at one stage says to his followers, beware the leaven of Herod. Another time he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't let legalism even get a toehold in your life because it always leads to pride and self-righteousness. Paul says, beware the leaven, this is writing to the Corinthians, beware the leaven leaven of immorality. It's like a virus. If you don't check it, it will spread through the church. Beware the leaven of malice. Beware the leaven of wickedness. To the Galatians, beware the leaven of false teaching because these things will creep in and will be unaware. And they'll be like a corrupting agent which spreads invisibly. Sometimes we read a verse in the Bible, you probably know what I'm talking about, and it stops you in your tracks. You can't just read on. I'll give you such a verse. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, the risen Jesus is addressing the church at Laodicea. And these are the words of Jesus. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing, but, says Jesus, you do not realize that you are wretched, that you are poor, that you are pitiful, that you are blind, and you are naked. And we say, 
how can a church which is wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked think it's all hunky-dory and we're doing grand things and we don't need anything? How can that happen? We know how it happens. It happens because it happens so imperceptibly we're not aware of it happening. It's a process like an erosion, like an invisible slide or drip. It's a slippage. All of us individually, if we're not pressing on in God, we're slipping back in God. It's a fact. None of us will stay where we are. It's a process of neglect. Which is, we don't decide to walk a path of neglect. We're just not proactive to prevent it. None of us say, I'm going to neglect my wider family, but if we're not proactive in remaining, keeping the contact, that's what will happen. We have an enemy. He works imperceptibly. You may have heard the illustration. If you take a frog and put it in a pan of hot water, it will leap out. But if you put it in the pan of cold water and gently bring the water to boil, it will almost certainly perish. Why? It didn't realize what was happening. It didn't realize its danger. It might have felt more and more comfortable. Imperceptible. In April, we had some frosty nights. The soil was very glad to have this frost to break up the soil. But I would go out and see in the bird bath, there was some ice, and birds need water, especially when there's, everything is frozen, and I'd replace the water. If I had a pond, the same would happen. Maybe if I left it, it would thaw in the day, but another cold drop, and the water started even colder. And after a day or two, there would be on that water bird bath or pond, a film of ice. Now, if I dropped a pebble on it, it would break. But two or three weeks of that weather, and I could lob a brick on it, and it would not even crack the ice. Why? Because it had happened so invisibly and imperceptibly, I didn't notice it, and only see the effect of it. I like J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of Romans 12 and verse 2, he says, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. A gentle squeezing. Don't let it happen. Don't let things creep in. We are meant to impact the world. The world's not meant to impact us. If we're not careful, we're not proactive, we'll begin to adapt their way of thinking, we'll begin to adapt their standards, we'll begin to adapt their false value system, we'll even start talking like them. And it'll happen and we won't even be aware of it. Don't allow it to happen. Don't let that which the enemy plants work like leaven through our lives. One observation. Remember, God works invisibly. Don't be discouraged if we don't see him at work. Number two, remember, God starts with small beginnings. That's his way. Number three, there are certain things we're not meant to try to measure, and many we can't anyway. Number four, beware that we have an enemy who works like yeast, invisibly. And forewarned with forearmed. And number five out of five, the woman had work to do. It's estimated with that amount of flour, she made dozens of barley loaves. That was her work. The leaven or the yeast had work to do. It was to permeate and spread to the whole of that dough. And we have work to do as well. 
and we have work to do in the best sense of the world, we are to be the leaven that spreads into the world and society around us. We are to infiltrate, we are to influence the world around us. That's our task. We have the light. We're the light of the world, says Jesus. And the light is meant to find and reveal darkness and to overthrow it. And darkness can't stand before light. We're meant to be the salt of the earth. Salt has got five properties that I know, and you can probably tell me more. I mentioned five quickly. One, salt is a preservative. You can salt fish and meat, and it will keep it from decay. We are meant to be a preservative in the world in which we live. Answer me this. How many people did God say he needed to find in that wicked city of Sodom and he would spare the city from judgment? Ten. If I find ten righteous people in that city, I would spare it. How many righteous people are there in this land, the British Isles today, starting with the Queen and working down? We are a preservative. If we were all raptured in a day, you know what would happen? All restraint would be off, and there'd be a tsunami of wickedness, and the country would rush headlong, gallop into judgment and destruction. We are here to preserve, a preservative agent. We have a job to do, we're to make an impact. Second quality of salt is it's got a healing property. We had Joy Chimbuma in our garden a couple of weeks ago or more. It's a lovely afternoon. If you don't know her, she's from Zimbabwe, where I met and married my wife a few years back. And she works as a nurse in the high dependency unit of Southport Hospital. Yeah. You want to know what that's like? Imagine being a soldier in a war in the Middle East on the front line of the battle with people being killed on either side of us and never knowing when it's our time to come. Imagine in the burning intense heat of the Middle East and constantly you have to wear full body armor. And that goes on, not week by week, but month by month for 15 months and imagine the toll it would have upon us. How grateful and how much respect do we have for the medical staff who work in intensive care and high dependency units in our Wow, Alan. And remember, there's often a toll and we need to pray for them now as well as they're there. But those who are bereaved, they need to know the God of the crisis is also the God of the aftermath. Well, I mentioned Joy because something was said in my garden that afternoon to discomfort me, and Joy was laughing her head off. And I said, Joy, your laughter's like salt in the wound. It's hurting even more. And she said, superior medical knowledge, salt will heal your wound, Joy, by saying. It's a preservative. It has healing. It adds flavor. We are meant to make this society more flavorful, a better place to live. In... Uh, Proverbs 11, 11, the passion, it says this, passion Bible. It says, the blessing of favor resting on the righteous will influence their city and lift it higher. You know that. West Lancashire can prosper more and know more blessing because of God's people in West Lancashire. 
is to flavor the society, make it better to live in. Salt also makes you thirsty. Anyone like me? I thank God for those lives who made me have a greater insatiable thirst for God than I ever had before. We're meant to preserve, we're meant to heal, we're meant to add flavor, we're meant to make people thirsty after the living God. And what you do with salt with your food, you sprinkle it over a whole place. And we're meant to have that influence spread around in society. That's our job to do. That's our commission, and that is our calling. Now, don't underestimate what one life can do. I'm talking about the corporate church and their influence, but one life. Think with me for a moment about a young man who was late teens, maybe early 20s. He was in a foreign land. He didn't understand a word of the language when he arrived. He was far from home. He was a slave. He was desperately lonely and homesick. He had no one in the whole land who could encourage him in his walk of faith. And yet Joseph had God with him. And his master, an important man in Egypt called Potiphar, recognized there was something about this. He was right at the bottom of the pecking order. There was something, and he promoted him. And every time he was promoted, he earned the envy and the spite and the hostility of those he worked with. It was like leaving his brothers and finding the same in another place because people don't like the one who was under them being over them. And he lived in that, but even then, in that unpopularity, God was with him. And in the end, he was managing director of the whole business. And Potiphar's household, all of it, and Potiphar's estate, all of it, was blessed of God because of the blessing of one man in that establishment. One person. One person in that prison, prisoner or member of staff, can work his influence through the whole prison. And Joseph did that when unjustly he was in prison later on on the journey. Then he influenced the history and preserved the greatest nation and civilization of his day and spared them disaster because he was their prime minister and steering them through seven years of famine and incidentally rescued God's chosen people, his family, at the same time. One person. You say that's remote, John. Okay. She's seven years of age. She has 27 in her class. She's the only one out of 27 who loves Jesus. And what does she do? She writes the names down of her classmates. She prays for them at home every day. She prays for her teacher. She asks her mum and dad to pray for the teacher. She befriends any she feels a little bit left out on the outside socially. She makes an effort to befriend them. She starts selectively to invite them back to her house. Two, she invites with the parents' permission back to her church. And one life, one seven-year-old can in that year completely change the climate and the character of her class, like leaven, working through it. That's the commission. One person can change our workplace and cause it to prosper. One person can change that accommodation block. One person can change that residential home. One person can change the street in which they live. One person can change their neighborhood. One person filled with the Spirit of God, fulfilling their commission, 
acting like yeast. D.L. Moody was a famous evangelist of his day. You know his words, many of you. As a young man, this is what he said. The world has yet to see what God can do with one person totally, utterly consecrated, yielded, sold out to God. With God's help, I aim to be that person. The exact quote, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man totally consecrated to him. Let me, by God's help, be that one. And I say to everybody in this room today and everybody listening to this at a later time or watching it, each life exercising an influence way beyond our knowing, spreading like ripples in the pond, directly or indirectly affecting for the kingdom of God many, many more people than we could ever get. And one day, There'll be people who thank God through time and eternity that God ever brought that one across their path and into their orbit. Because that one was the yeast that caused that kingdom of God to spread ever wider. Thank you for listening to me. Just have a time of pause, a time of quiet. Thank you, John. There is a God who works invisibly, but there is an enemy who also works invisibly. There is a God who does not despise the beginnings, small things, but the enemy also starts in people's lives with small things. You see the balance in that? The deciding factor of the way we go is the decisions that we make. Am I going to watch what I watch? Am I going to watch what I read? Am I going to watch what I look at? Am I going to order my life in godly way? We all make a choice. And my prayer for everyone listening, everyone listening now, wherever you might be, is that you make the right choice. And say, Father, you sang to us earlier that you have everything that we need. That our eyes stay fixed on, focused on you. May we not be distracted by all the stuff that this world might want to offer when we have found the pearl of great price. We give ourselves to you. Pray, I pray God your blessing upon every person listening right now. In Jesus' name, amen.